The choice. Begin where you are. God is not just here and now. He is here and now pursuing us. This ever-present God makes demands of us. He's not a tax collector asking for a percentage of time and resources and leaving the rest to you. As your creator and author, he demands all of you. He is the maker, you are the maid. He is the potter, you are his pot. He is the author, you are his character. This is Pines with Jack, season seven, episode eight. Lewis on the Christian life. After hours with Dr. Joe Rigney. Welcome to Pints with Jack, the podcast where we read through the works of C.S. Lewis. Today is an After Hours interview episode, and today I'm joined with Dr. Joe Rigney. Dr. Joe Rigney is a returning guest to Pints with Jack, one that I personally was able to interview maybe six months ago, and it was a lovely conversation, as you guys remember. Uh, we went through Live Like an Ardian, Christian Discipleship, and Lewis's Chronicles, so we'll put that in the show notes so you can reference back to that. He is a fellow of theology at New St. Andrew College. He is the author of five books, the one I just mentioned that we discussed last time. And today he returns to chat about Lewis on the Christian life, becoming truly human in the presence of God. Dr. Joe Rigney, welcome to Pints with Jack. Thanks. Glad to be here. I was so excited for this. I, I First of all, I re-listened to our last conversation, which I loved. And I said that on that episode as well. What I love that you do and what just really resonates and why when I look through all of the after hours we're doing this season, I personally selected you out of the ones that I'll be doing because you do such a good job taking Lewis, but then applying it to our life. Mm. And I just think that's so important. We can love Lewis for the sake of learning about Lewis, but I think Lewis would say himself, how is this transforming into your spiritual life? How is this bringing you closer to God? Then I saw the title of this book and I was like, whoa, <laughs> this is just like the perfect title that drew me into it. And the book did not disappoint in the slightest. It was just, it was fantastic. So I'm excited that you're back here with me. I'm looking forward to it too. I, I do think you're absolutely right that Lewis kind of wore different hats. Like He's like Lewis the academic and you know, you've got that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. The scholarly stuff's fun too. But when it comes to um, sort of his popular writings, he wants to help people know God. <laughs> like, he, like that's the, yes. everything is geared towards that. Um, either toward helping you think rightly about reality or moving your will, moving your imagination so that you um, live faithfully. You actually like conform to Christ. And so that can get lost sometimes, I think, whenever people focus mainly like on, like on the apologetic side, like people really get into that. And it's like, that's that's important. But he himself recognized that like all of the apologetic stuff is just preparation. Like at the end of the day, it's like mm-hmm. we need the gospel and we need to follow Jesus. And that's what I loved. And, and I want to be careful because I'll, I'll end up just going down a ro- whole rabbit hole, but <laughs> before we even get into the book, but that is what I loved is it is, you said it perfectly. It is easy to call it in apologetic debates. Mm-hmm. I enjoy those. They are important. You're exactly right. But what I love about this is I don't want to say it was almost like a systematic theology of Lewis, but it brings his greatest points or brings them all together from these different books. And it's like, like, for example, we'll get into this later, but the choice, the way you phrase this choice that you make every single day, heavenly hellish creatures. That's not some point that people are arguing theologically. It's just like every day you're making a decision to turn closer to Christ and not. And it's like, that's an incredibly important thing to know and have in the back of your mind that there's a spiritual battle going on in this heavenly hellish creature concept. And so that's really what I loved about this book was it's like you could read all of this and know no theology and you are equipped with a toolkit that's probably 80, 90%. I mean, actually, it's plenty to get you fully there. It really was a, a great way to do this. And so, yeah, I feel like I'm already jumping ahead <laughs> to some of this other stuff. So first, David always gets mad at me because I never do the drink of the week. Although we're recording, I guys, at 1 p.m. So there is no alcohol involved, I would imagine. Well, it is, have a it is, uh, it's 10 a.m. here on the Pacific Coast. So uh, <laughs> there is definitely, if there was, if it, if it was evening, uh, it would either be a sour ale or like an Irish whiskey. That w- that's what it would be, but Ooh. but since it teelings, so I'm like I'm a teelings guy. So, but since it's 10 a.m., it is in fact Diet Coke. <laughs> I like it. I was just in Ireland in August, and I've been a big Scotch person, yeah. but there I just did Irish whiskey yeah. left and right, and loved it. I ended up buying some Bushmills on the way back because I was yeah. like, oh, I like this Bushmills. Do you try teelings? Ah, so if you can find teelings, it's my favorite. There's a little sweeter element to it than you know Scotch or or bourbon and things okay. like that. Um, that for whatever reason, like I like it. Other people don't like it. They want the the smoky. They want the whatever. But I'm like, no, nah, Teeling's Irish whiskey. That's my that's my jam. I'm gonna 100% give this a try. Well, beautiful. Let's start with um 
Actually, just just for listeners, what you've been up to since our last conversation, whether in the Lewis world, in the book world, career-wise, you know, it's been about maybe six, nine months since we last chatted. Yeah. Since that time, uh, I've we've made a big move as a family. We're, uh, we now live in Moscow, Idaho. I'm a professor at uh, New St. Andrews College, and uh, I serve on staff at Christ Church here. So if your listeners are familiar with Doug Wilson and the family of ministries there, I'm now a part of that community. That's been a big transition, but uh, but a good one. We miss our, our Minneapolis friends, love our, our Bethlehem community, but uh, but this was the right call for us. And so here we are. In terms of books, let's see, uh, I had a book on courage that was released like in August. So that's, a, you know, just a, how the gospel creates Christian fortitude was what that book focused on. And then I've got a couple other projects kind of in the works coming out here, you know, in the fall, spring, a book on Jonathan Edwards uh, that came out in September as well. So that was a kind of the end for which God created the world, that an exposition of Edwards' great treatise on that topic. You've been busy. Yeah. Uh, well, so here's the deal. So a lot of these things kind of, you know, they, they get done at different times and then they get into the publishing pipelines and then I don't know what happens to them. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, it's out now. Okay, great. Uh, and so they just happen to all kind of different publishers, different timelines, and all of a sudden there they are. Then I've also got a book on a little, little book on leadership, leading in an age of anxiety and agitation coming out here uh, pretty soon. And then uh, long, slow burn stuff on Lewis' side is probably a book on Puddleglum's faith. I think we talked about this briefly on the last one. I'm excited. So yeah, so we probably did talk about it if we did, since we did Narnia. Um, Puddleglum's faith, that one's still kind of in the slow burn, collecting things, letting it, uh, letting it ruminate on the slow boil. And then we'll see what what happens whenever I can get to it. I love it. And what's the title of the that courage book that you mentioned? Courage is just called Courage: How the Gospel Creates Christian oh. Fortitude. <laughs> it's yeah, real simple. Perfect. Every time you list your title of your books, you have uh, whether it's you coming up or people helping you, you have great titles to your books. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I like I like titling. It. It's it's fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, now turning to the book that we're going through right now, what was the origin and the genesis of this, and what was kind of the hope that you had that listeners would get out of this? Yeah. So, uh, Live Like an Arnian was my first book. I often say it was the most fun. Like it was one of those ones that just kind of just fell out. Um, you know, Bunyan talked about when he wrote Pilgrim's Progress, it was like, as I pulled, it came. And that was a little bit how Live Like an Arnian was. That was one that I wrote on my own. It was self-published. It was on my own deadlines. Everything was great. And, uh, and it just came out. Um, and so, that had been out for a couple of years. And I think I did a, a conference message maybe on that topic somewhere. And then uh, Justin Taylor, who's you know one of the head guys at uh, Crossway Publishers, uh, approached me and said, hey, we've got this series, um, Theologians on the Christian Life. And uh, we were collecting different guys on you know Edwards and John Owen and Augustine and different Spurgeon, people like that. Um, and we'd like to do one on Lewis. Would you be interested? I think you could do that. And at the time, I actually was like, well, that feels way out of my pay grade. Like I'm a Narnia guy. I've read Lewis, but I'm not like a Lewis scholar, Lewis expert. I'm a Lewis lover, Lewis appreciator, but I've not done all the stuff. And so that felt, felt very daunting, but I was like, but that could be really fun. And so I dove into it. And so basically over the course of a couple of years, I read through and then listened to, I think multiple times, like everything Lewis had written. So there's like this big collection, you can get it on Audible of like all of Lewis's essays, like every one of them. And it's like in one collection, like the C.S. Lewis collection. And it's all I of his essays. I just downloaded it. Yeah. It's like 40 hours <laughs> of Lewis essays. Uh, and then, of course, you can buy the audiobook. You can usually buy audiobooks. But I listened to that 40 hours a couple of times. And then I was you know, doing the, the big books, Screwtape and Letters to Malcolm and Great Divorce and Space Trilogy and everything. And the thing that struck me was that you could sort of hear, if you, when you listen, when I listened to it, I could hear the same themes being treated in different modes, different times, different different forms. So here's an essay version, here's a book version, here's a fiction version. And so that kind of helped to sort of begin to coalesce uh, and kind of the original the original plan for the book, which didn't end up panning out exactly, but still informed everything, was Lewis on the Christian life. He's not a theologian, he's not a pastor. So unlike the other authors in this series that this book's in, um, he doesn't, it's not like you can just go consult his sermons or his big theological treatises. That's not how he wrote. I'm like, it's like, he's writing the space trilogy. What am I going to do? You know, how, how Christian life on that. Yeah. But he's a layman and and knows it and thinks of himself as I'm helping people as a layman to grow in, grow in Christ. And so, screw tape letters and letters to Malcolm kind of became a, an, an intriguing possibility because here you have sort of screw tape letters, you know, here's the devil's strategies to pull you away from the Lord. And then letters to Malcolm is sort of Lewis late in his life writing. This is actually came out of a lot of his letters. Um, it's a, a little fun exercise is read letters to Malcolm 
and then pick up his actual, the letters of C.S. Lewis. Like they, they've collected the letters that he wrote to people. And if you read, especially kind of the later ones, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, when he's writing, you can actually find sections from letters to Malcolm in actual letters to real people. And so basically ah. he had written these letters to like real people. Yeah. There's an American lady that he was uh, communicating with, a couple of different correspondents, particularly a lot, lot of women actually. Um, and that basically what he did is he took a lot of their interactions. They're seeking spiritual counsel, spiritual advice, and he takes a lot of what they do and he sort of rolls it up into this uh, fictional Malcolm, friend of his. And then they have this back and forth letters, which you only get one side of. Um, you don't get Malcolm's letters. You only get the letters to Malcolm and then puts it into like a little book to kind of help people. How do you pray? And what are some of the theological issues that go into all that? So I, I really loved that book. And so that was kind of the two, you know, the, it's like the, the angel and the devil on the shoulder sort of thing. You got the devil on the <laughs> yeah. one side, screw tape, and then you got the angel. In this case, it's not an actual angel. It's just C.S. Lewis, but trying to help you. And that was sort of the, the basic deal. And so I was starting to kind of try to write it in that mode. And, and that is the organizing. And then realized, ah, this isn't really going to work. And so what shifted for me was then realizing, well, that paradigm, the, you know, the angel on one shoulder, the devil on the other pulling you um, really does get at the heart of Lewis's deal, which is the choice. Um, every day you're faced with a choice of like, which way? Choose this day whom you'll serve. Which, who's, who's God? Who are you going to follow? And that all of your little choices are building up to the big choice, which is um, love God or love the self. And so I was like, that's, the, I'm going to use that as sort of the overarching, and then I'll just pick out the different, the different themes. So that was kind of the, the origin and a little bit of kind of the, the early stage, you know, writing, how do I put this thing together for the series? What I love is, I don't think you realize, I don't think anyone's, maybe David did mention something. So we're doing the letters this season, <laughs> coincidentally. Yeah. Okay. So we're starting with letters to American lady, yeah. letters to children, and then the Latin letters. And so this will be our first experience with it. So I love that that was a big inspiration to this book. And this is going to be one of the earlier episodes oh, this awesome. season. Yeah. So this is actually going to work out quite well. You're practically summarizing everything that we're probably going to read. <laughs> well, let's start with, you mentioned the choice. Let's start with the choice because I think you obviously just stated it too, a big driving force behind this. It's one of the most beautiful things. It was the first concept that I think ever really hit me of Lewis's. One of the first books I read outside of Mere Christianity was The Great Divorce. I remember chatting with a friend and he talked about how that book is so much about becoming a certain person, um, a person of substance. And I've always loved that day-to-day -day thought. And so can you unpack a bit this concept of the choice? You describe it in relation to, in the book, um, an understanding of some principles of God and who we are in our relation to him and then this choice. Yeah. So the, so the basic idea, um, and I think this is latent in almost it, all of Lewis's, certainly his kind of apologetic and his practical writings. I think this is always the undercurrent. Once you recognize it, then you can't help but kind of see it everywhere. You're you, you're here, you're now, you're where you are, wherever that is. Um, and you have a mind, you have a heart, you're a creature, there you are. So you're here. Um, who else is here? Well, God is here, right? God's omnipotent, omnipresent. He's present everywhere. He's not, um, and, he's, and he's a person. So the, the personal, holy, unimaginable, incomprehensible God is present wherever it is that you are. So you're here and he's here. And not only is he here, is he's, he's demanding things of you. He has, he's um, pursuing you. He's after you. So he's, he's seeking you. And so that means that this is the choice that you're confronted with. You, you're here and now, God's here and now, and God is making demands and seeking all that you are. And so then every moment of every day, you're confronted with the choice. Either surrender to that pursuit, either answer back with your own, with faith, with obedience, um, respond to God's pursuit in that way, or reject it, turn aside from it, rise up, assert your own independence. This is sort of Lewis at you know, various points. It says, uh, I think this is from the beginning of Great Divorce. Reality presents us with an absolutely unavoidable either or. Hmm. Either here or there. Either God or self. That's the choice. That choice takes different forms in different circumstances. So it's, it's the same choice. But it looks different depending on, you know, the little details are going to be there and they're going to be different. But it's the same choice again and again and again. And because of it, every day you're either becoming a creature fit for heaven, a heavenly creature, or a hellish creature. Those are the two destinations. And sooner or later, you're going you're gonna to arrive where you're going. You know, related to the choice, one of my favorite parts of the Screwtape Letters, it was like this realization I was personally struggling a bit in that season of life. 
And sometimes you can look back at the slow fade, which is essentially accumulation of the negative choice <laughs> growing further and further and further. And then you can take a step back and you can look at where you were and where you've come from a negative perspective. And it can be kind of depressing, despairing of like, wow, this is going to be a journey back. What I love about this choice, these small battles is the same thing can offer like an insane hope if you just flip it back on your head that, okay, here's where I'm at today on a, on a lower level. Here's where I want to be or ultimately when you're in heaven in perfect communion with God and there's a big gap and maybe that gap can be kind of daunting. But when you recognize it can be a slow ascent as well of like, just make that small choice every day. You don't need to go from weightlifting a 10 pound weight to a hundred pound weight. It's like, you just got to get to 11, then 15, then 20, then 25. And, I, and that brought me so much hope. I know it's kind of a simple, dumb idea that, but I was like, the thing that was causing me so much despair could also be a really great sign of hope if you just take it day by day. I think it's mere Christianity. Lewis says has something effective. Every time you make a choice, you're turning the central part of you, the will, into something different than it was before. And if you add up all the choices, then you become heavenly or hellish. Yes. But that's the, the idea is that every little, every little choice is building up one way or the other. This is the thing in Screwtape as well is that the devil wants you to get to focus on either the past or the future. You know, the, here's the things that are going to happen to me in the future or that I'm going to do in the future. Here's the things that happened to me in the past or that I did in the past. But like all of your choices take place in the present. Mm -hmm. Like that's where you are. And so that's all you can do. And this is a very, it's a very biblical point. This is what Jesus is getting at with don't be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will, you know, sufficient for the day is the trouble thereof. Tomorrow <laughs> will worry about itself. Right now it's, are you going to be anxious now? Are you mm -hmm. going to trust me now? That's the question for you, um, not what's going to happen tomorrow. And so that that sort of present tense, here you are in the here and now, and and what are you going to do with the, the moment that's been given to you? Is it towards God or away from God? I think is the sort of basic thing. And, and he always brings it back to that personal dimension. So there's he does this overtly in a number of essays, especially where he brings it down. He says, I know that well, everything we've talked about, you may be thinking about your neighbor or your family member. But really the question is you, <laughs> like this is a question for you. What are you going to do um, with this, with this reality? you it's now confronting you. What now? Everything hangs on you. It's interesting. There's a great um, scene. I think it's in, it's in Paralandra where he dramatizes this in the character of, of Ransom where, um, you know, Ransom has been fail trying and failing at helping the green lady resist the temptation from the unman. The unman, he's winning mm -hmm. the, the argument. Um, and Ransom's really frustrated, like, where's God? Why isn't God helping? Shouldn't God have done something by now? And then he has this sort of like, um, it's a really intriguing way because it's like an internal conversation between Ransom sort of and quote unquote himself. But you discover over the course that it's actually a conversation between Ransom and Melelda, between Ransom and God. There, um, this, this, there's a voice coming to him, but it's in his own head. And as he kind of works over this problem, it's like, well, what did God do? God put you there and you have to do something. And then Ransom realized like, oh, everything is in my hands. Like, and that all of the angels of heaven are like arrayed around me to see what um, Elwyn Ransom of Cambridge would do. Like, what are you going to do? <laughs> and just like the, the, the sort of the sheer terror of this, of this moment, he says he felt like he'd been brought out on the edge of a precipice and was just like standing there. Like, I cannot believe this is terrifying. I'm here. And he keeps trying to retreat from it. He keeps trying to like get out of it and put it off on, oh, God will do something or Jesus will do something or, you know, somebody else will take care of this. <laughs> and every time it just gets thrown back in his face where it's like, no, everything rests on your shoulders. This is the choice. And this is the one that's been given to you. So are you going to stand for, for Maleldil or not? Are you going to stand for Christ or not? And then at some point, there's kind of this shift where he kind of passes over into like, then I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to do what God wants. And it's just this very, I don't know. It's like this, it's this serene, surreal sort of, sort of moment for, for ransom that actually, I think I did this in the book, but it connects to, this is how Lewis, uh, one stage of Lewis's conversion felt like where like, he was like just riding the bus and he was like, one minute I was like, I'm not a Christian. And the next minute he's like, I'm a Christian, <laughs> you know? And it was that he, and he, and for forever after he would talk about his conversion, like predestination and free will, that whole debate just evaporated for him because it was just like all one thing. It yeah. was like, yes, God ordained, you know, God did this, God chose me, God did it, but like I did it. And it's like, I don't, he, all the debates just sort of evaporated. And so he describes his own conversion that way, his own sort of the ultimate first choice, so to speak, uh, for Christ. And then 
dramatizes that in in Ransom and then in a countless other places in his in his writing. I'm really glad you brought up Ransom and then you mentioned the the free will predestination kind of side of things because the next thing I wanted to connect this to was you, you talk about the good infection. Yeah. Which is such a beautiful concept. But I'm curious how you would, one, just kind of talk about the good infection, but a little bit in relation to the choice, the daily choices as well. Because the daily choice can kind of make it sound like 100% free will, which is true, free will, but like can be almost daunting. You use, I like how you use that with ransom, daunting. I, yeah. Sometimes it's hard to make these choices, addictions, things like that. But at the same time, you have this good infection side that's also playing a role in here. And these two, almost like there's an interplay between them, like the good infection is helping the choice, the choice is helping the good infection um, on right. a, a minor scale. And I might be saying this completely wrong, so I'll give you a chance to talk about it. But I'm curious how you would kind of unpack that a bit. Yeah. So I think, you know, Lewis, he threads the needle at some level and I think intentionally so, this is the mere Christian Lewis trying to thread the needle between what, you know, is popularly called sort of like Calvinism and Arminianism, predestination, free will. Um, now, the reality is, is that if you actually examine his theology, he's very much what I would call on the reform side of the ledger. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a- Anglicanism historically, like the 39 articles is that. He acknowledges this at a couple of places where, you know, it's the Pauline Philippians to work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is at work within you. And so we work because God worked. But the order matters. It's that it's that God's work is sort of underneath our work, but it really is your work. Yep. And so Lewis has this uh, this image that I had picked up years ago from from him and from from others of sort of the author and the story that like it's not a zero sum game when we think about our own actions. It's not a zero sum game as though if I do fifty percent and God does fifty percent, it's this joint effort. It's not even the sort of thing where God does 99% and I do the last 1%. He gets me almost all the way there and then leaves the last little bit sort of up to me on my own. The way that Lewis kind of presents this uh, is it's like, no, it's 100% you and it's 100% God. Mm -hmm. They don't cancel each other out. It's not a zero-sum game. God is unique in his relation to creatures. He's telling a story. He's writing a story and you're the character in the story. You're God's character. So then it's up to you what what kind of character you'll be. He's got a line, I think it's in Mere Christianity, where he says, um, everybody's going to glorify God one way or the other. It just matters very much to us whether you glorify God like John or you glorify God like Judas. Like, so that's wow. there's the choice again, right? Yeah. You're going to glorify God either way. Like This is his story. You're going to glorify him. But do you glorify him like the Apostle John, the beloved disciple, or do you glorify him like Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus. Those are the choices. The same thing that Ransom's facing. He's like, I'm either going to be the apostle Peter or I'm going to be Pilate. Mm-hmm. You know, like those are the choices before me. Which which character are you? And at some level, in terms of the story level of the of choice, um, within the story, everything's on your shoulders. That's where the choice comes into play. But you you we know because there's an author that the entire story has been written. Mm-hmm. Like got, all the days ordained were for me were written in a book. Psalm 139. All the days ordained were written in a book before one of them happened. So everything's been written and yet you're living it out. And so within the story, so this is where I think it's a really helpful way to think about the sovereignty freedom problem. Um, And Lewis actually gives us picture like who killed the white witch? Who killed the white witch? Well, um, Aslan did. That's in the story. Aslan did. Who killed the white witch? C.S. Lewis did. He's the one who wrote the story. And and th- and it's not like, well, but you got to pick one. Which one of those is the real answer? It's like, they're both the real answer. Yeah. Why did Aslan have to die? Because Edmund was a traitor. Why did Ad- Aslan have to die? Because Lewis wrote the story that way. I've never heard this before. I like this. I think it's a really helpful way to kind of thread that needle. And Lewis talks about this, I think, in terms of like a, a double vision a couple of times, like when he thinks about election and predestination and those sorts of questions or assurance of salvation everyone should sort of view themselves like one like one one of the sides of the double vision is god does it all mm-hmm. and you need to rely on that and the other side is you've got to keep you know keep yourself in the love of god persevere don't quit run the race and it's you kind of constantly have to have both of those in mind or you're going to fall into uh into error so i just i find him really helpful on that sort of question and that author story thing i use that like nonstop in my teaching as a way of trying to help people get the uh, the uniqueness of the creature creator relation. Have you read a decent amount of Augustine? Uh, yeah, like a fair bit, like C- City of God, Confessions, that sort of Trinity, that sort of thing. Yeah, is this at all related to some of his thinking? 
I took a course on him a while back, so I, my my memory is very vague and foggy of the class. Yeah, but I I feel like I remembered. I think I've heard Lewis has read some Augustine. I feel like I remember. Oh yeah, Augustine writing something that's like there's a primary like grace that that God is doing in you that salvation, but then there's a cooperation that we do within it, and it sounded sounded very similar language what you're describing to some degree, but I wasn't sure if yeah I I think there's there's a family resemblance there between. Um, you know, Augustine's prayer, which is what got him into the fight with the Pelagians, was um, in confessions, he said, command what you will, this is a, to God, command what you will, but give what you command. Mm-hmm. So, command what you will. So, so tell me what to do, yeah. but then give me the ability to do it. Yeah. And Pelagius was absolutely flabbergasted by this, rejected it, because he was like, that doesn't make any sense. If, if God commands it, it must be entirely within your power. And Augustine says, that's not how the Bible works. And I think Lewis is very much in that in that willingness, and and he's not uh, as interested in trying to diagram it for you on a whiteboard mm. as though that could be done. Yep. But he is going to try to give you images of it. In, fa- in fact, one of the fun things about the author story thing is that on the one hand, you got the author authorial level, and then the character level, um, and then the incarnation is basically God sort of um, writing himself into the story as a human character. And Lewis does this in Paralandra, like the opening chapter is Lewis walking to Ransom's house and he's writing himself into the story or great divorce is another example. I think Lewis actually picked this up from guys like Dante. So like Dante's divine comedy is Dante, the poet writes it, but there's a character in it named Dante. Who's the one who's being guided on this pilgrimage. And that's the same thing happening. Great divorce is just Lewis's updated version of the divine comedy. And he writes himself. He's the, the guy in the story. He's the guy on the journey. And so this is an image of how God writes himself into the story that he's he's telling. Mm. Switching gears a little bit to one of the other concepts in the book that just even the way you phrased it, I thought was just so cool. But I'd love just for you to unpack a little bit the privatization of religion in the collectivization of the secular life. <laughs> First of all, just the play on words was fantastic. Uh, but can you just explain what you mean and and how you're connecting it to Lewis? Lewis hated the collective. So mid 20th century was all about the collective, like turn away from the individual and it's all about collective. So you can, you know, socialism, uh, I think Nazism would fall into this too for him, uh, but all forms of that sort of thing. And he just recognized it and said, this is all evil. He just, hate, I think there's a quote where he's basically like, I hate the collective as much as any man can hate anything. <laughs> you wow. know, like, um, And yet he saw dangers both in individualism and collectivism and the antidote was membership. Mm. So this is from essays like membership. He's got an essay called equality, I think, where he does the same thing. But the basic idea is when the modern world says, um, tries to privatize religion and say religion is a personal affair, it's your private opinions. And so, and it'll say things like you can, you can be religious when you're alone in your private life. But then he says, but it adds under its breath and we're never going to let you be alone. Privatized religion means you're, we're going to just wipe religion out completely. Mm. What are you going to substitute? Well, you're going to substitute the collective. And for him, the idea of the collective was best represented by the numbers on a prisoner's uniform, right? You're no longer a human. You're no longer an individual. You're no longer you. You're just a number. And that was sort of like the ultimate collective. And instead, membership was sort of his antidote to like, how do you bring together the individual and the group, the one and the many? Um, was membership, which is the biblical image for it, right? We're members of the of Christ's body and um, of his church. And Lewis's point here is to say the body as an entity has different body parts and they're not the same. The hand is not the eye. The eye is not the foot. The foot is not the leg. There's real differences. Each body part should be fully it itself. And yet, um, the whole body needs all of the parts to function properly. So there's no water everything down and make everybody identical, but nor is there this sort of, I can do it on my own. Uh, the hand cannot say to the eye, I have no need of thee. He uses that body imagery as sort of like, this is the unique thing that Christianity is bringing to the table is that we're mm-hmm. members of the body and therefore we can be fully ourselves and the, and the place in the body matters. The, the household's the same way. Mom and dad are not identical and interchangeable. Um, Still less are parents and children interchangeable. Even the family dog. Lewis says, has a place <laughs> in the family. Like he matters. Um, uh, and it's and it's not a place that anybody else can fill. And so the place was made for the individual, the individual is made for the place. And so that's the way that he kind of threads the needle between 
individualism and then collectivism on as the two errors that the modern world uh, wanted to fall into. That's fantastic. Now, probably my favorite part of the entire um, section, maybe outside of the choice, but Christian hedonism. <laughs> I think that's how you titled the chapter even. Um, and I, I just loved that. And I think even some people would even be surprised by that that concept or that idea. God is a lover of pleasure. I think you said we fast not for fasting's sake, but so we can enjoy a feast. And then you mentioned in here, you talk about screw tape twisting pleasures in for reason. And so, yeah, can you unpack that that idea there a little bit? Yeah. So Christian hedonism, uh, the term obviously is derived from one of my heroes, mentors, uh, John Piper is the one who coined that particular phrase, Christian hedonism. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And one of the sources that John sort of got this idea outside of the scriptures um, was C.S. Lewis. Um, it was because of those quotes were like, you know, we're stalking joy, we're, we're in pursuit of joy. Joy is, is what we were made for. Um, and where is joy to be found? Well, it's ultimately in God himself. Mm. And so that, that basic idea of that we glorify um, God by enjoying him, or in Lewis's terms, I think there's a section, it's in the Reflections on the Psalms, where he originally really had a strong negative reaction to the Psalms as Christian scripture, because he was like, this is, if this was inspired by God, written by God, God breathed, then you have God writing a book in which everybody's like, praise, he's basically saying, praise me, praise me, praise me, praise me, praise the Lord just means praise me. And this sounded to Lewis like a vain old woman seeking compliments, like, tell me how good I am. And it felt really, yeah. And then all of a sudden he had this like light bulb moment where he realized, well, wait a minute. The most obvious fact about praise is that people do it all the time for things that they enjoy. Like the world rings with praise, lovers praising their mistresses, right? Readers praising their favorite poets. Everybody praises everything. Every, everybody praises the things that they love. Why do they do that? Because praise completes the enjoyment. It's the consummation mm -hmm. of the joy. Joy overflows in praise. And then Lewis realized all of a sudden how stupid it was to say, how could God be indifferent to our praise of him? God calls us to praise him. What is he saying? He's saying, enjoy me so much that it overflows in praise. That's what the call is. So I'm going to satisfy you deeply and then you're going to praise me. So that's, that's sort of the basic uh, Christian hedonist point from Lewis. And then the thing that I noticed, especially in a number of different, different, like Paralander is a really good example, is how Lewis liked to focus on the particular pleasures and sort of get like, hey, if these are invitations from God to know him, mm -hmm. if God wants us to chase the sunbeams back to the sun, well, then we really ought to pay attention to the sunbeams. We, we ought to study them, think about them, enjoy them. And so that's where this idea of every joy is different. And yet all of them lead back to the fountain of joy. And, uh, and so that's the beams of glory. So Lewis has this whole, he has an essay called Hedonics, where it, he says, this is the science and the study of pleasure. Uh. There's the science and the study of pleasure. And, and he distinguishes between um, pleasures of appreciation and pleasures of need. So there's certain pleasures that are enjoyable only because you have a need of them. And then there's others that are uh, just appreciated. There's, they don't meet any need like, like flowers, right? There's no... Uh, pleasures of food can be pleasures of need. Like I'm hungry and then pleasures of appreciation are things that you don't have a need for. And so he starts kind of making these distinctions in order to say, God has filled the world with pleasures and all of them testify to him. They're reflections of his glory and you're meant to chase them back to the source. I love that. Is that in the essay, Malcolm's Letters to Malcolm? That hedonics part isn't in Letters to Malcolm. It's in a book of essays. It's not in God in the Dock either. It's, it's in one of the smaller books of essays, Christian Reflections maybe, or... Uh, I'm not sure which one, but uh, the the ideas of um, pleasures are shafts of the glory as they strike our senses. So pleasures are shafts of the glory of God as they encounter our bodily um, apparatus, and therefore um, every we need to experience the world, experience um, reality. Start where you are. Start with the simple pleasures in front of you. Realize that what they are is a message from God to know Him deeply, and then to say thank you for them, and then to chase them back to the sun. That's very much in Letters to Malcolm. Okay. I like that. So you, you have a chapter on hell. You have a chapter on heaven. Um, you talk about the outer darkness and heaven more in like a further, further in capacity. Yep. How does Lewis's understanding of those help us in our spiritual life? Yeah. So this is the end result. This is like the destination. If, the, if there's the choice, you have the forked road in front of you. You can go right or left. Um, mm -hmm. This is the destination. Sooner or later, everybody arrives one of these two places. And I think, so beginning with, with the hell side of the equation, um, for Lewis, 
Um, he really believes in this. So uh, he, like he thinks this is a real thing. This is not make believe. This is Jesus taught this. Um, we have to reckon with it as much as uncomfortable as it may make us. This is a real thing. And then he tries to kind of like um, sometimes he's trying to explain the the justice of it and remove some of the uh, sort of visceral reactions that, or objections that people have. And I think the thing that he does that's really helpful, even if I think my emphasis might be a little different from him based on what the need of the hour is, something like that, um, is that hell is both self-inflicted and divinely inflicted. You're thrown into hell and you choose hell. Both of those are true statements. And the self-inflicted is by turning aside from God, by choosing yourself, you're cutting yourself off from life and joy and therefore choosing misery. You're, you're yeah. choosing to sink into your own misery. You're choosing to wallow in the sin. And therefore, what's the name for that? With If all of the goodness was removed, if you got what you wanted, what would you be left with? You're left with husks and ashes. You're left with outer darkness. There's no light, no joy, no, no happiness. In that sense, it's self-inflicted. Um, Lewis has the line where he says, hell's locked from the inside. And I think in saying that, he's channeling, I think Dante thinks that way. Uh, I think that Milton probably thinks that way. The devil in, in Milton's Paradise Lost, which Lewis read, loved, wrote a book on, you know, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. I'd, I'd mm -hmm. rather be in hell. Um, and so hell's locked from the inside. At the same time, he doesn't want to deny the biblical picture, which is that God throws people there. But but it's bringing those two together, I think, that is part of the the genius where like, on, so in Great Divorce, you know, hell is this crack in the sidewalk and it's close to nothing. It's like you're shrinking, shriveling, evaporating, becoming less and less and less and less until you, um, I don't think Lewis thinks you actually pass. It, he's not an annihilationist. You don't pass out of existence, but you do get closer and closer and closer and closer to nothing forever. Mm. You become less substantial, more ingrown. One of my favorites, a weird word to use for this, but one of the most potent images that he uses uh, for this is in Great Divorce. The narrator and George MacDonald, his guide, are observing a conversation between one of the, the spirits, the shades, the, the ghosts, and uh, one of the solid spirits. And it's this old woman who's just complaining about stuff. She's just, oh, if you'd only knew how hard it's been for me down there in the gray town and everybody, nobody wants to talk to me. And that poor, that woman is always trying, bragging on her son. And, and, you know, there's all this, she's just, she's just complaining, murmuring away. And, uh, and then they walk off and then McDonald says, what do you think about that? And he said, um, well, it seems a little bit harsh that a woman like that, um, she's just a woman who needs a little bit of a rest. She's just grumbling. And then McDonald says, well, the real question is, whether in fact she's a grumbler. And Lewis goes, well, I think there's no debate about that. She's definitely a grumbler. And McDonald says, no, you misunderstand. The question is whether she's a grumbler or whether she's just a grumble. That's the punchline. Whether she's a grumbler. Because if she's a grumbler, that means there's still a person there who's grumbling. And, the, and if it's a person, that person could, in, in theory, repent of their grumbling. They could, mm -hmm. they could turn, turn away from it. But it may be that she's just descended completely into, and she's just a grumble. And that way of thinking about sort of being broken down and sort of sinking into your sin and becoming remains, being you know, decomposing, all of that is what, that's Lewis's potent way of saying, this is what hell is, is you just become the grumble. You, you're, it's no longer that you are envious. You're just, you've decayed into envy. You've decayed into selfishness. You've decayed and it's all, everything comes apart. And he has various ways in his, in different of the novels, especially of depicting sort of the horror of this, of, you know, what, a, what a human being ought to be and could be, and then what it becomes when it turns into itself. So that's the, that's the bit on, on hell. And it's, and it's very, I think it's potent and, um, provided it's cup, it's coupled with this idea that this isn't just you choose it and God's indifferent, but that yeah. it's true and accurate to say, no, this is what God gives you over to God casts you here. This is a punishment. I, I like the image. Well, the other image he uses is, um, what hell is, is it's when God plants the flag of truth inside the rebel soul. God is like saying, you're trying to live the lie. You're trying to live in this falsehood and I'm going to plant the flag of truth and of joy and, and you're going to hate it, but I'm going to plant it anyway. Um, that's another, another great of Lewis's images. Before we, we turn attention to the heaven side, I was reading this book, Fulfillment of All Desire, and I believe it was bringing in Catherine of Siena. Uh, and she had maybe a vision of hell in one of the th graces that she writes about in that was um, just what Satan truly looks like. And what she meant as she explained this was 
what it really looks like to become a hellish creature. Because on earth, when we're tempted with these decisions that are turning us more towards a hellish creature, they're actually appealing. They seem attractive to us. That's the temptation of, uh, of the devil. But when you start to understand what the picture you just painted of this really insubstantial, non-substantial, unsubstantial, I don't know the right word there, um, individual that is just completely empty, completely shallow, devoid of any sort of true joys inside of them, you start realizing these little decisions you're making they just become less and less appealing. And I think we can all sort of relate. Yep. I mean, maybe I hope many can't, but I've been in dark periods where I've been like 12, 18 months where you've just been making bad choices. You're not doing the spiritual practices like you should be and you're doing more, you're living more of a viceful life and you just feel empty. You really don't feel any sense of joy or satisfaction. In the very beginning though, you're tempted, uh, obviously. And then it just kind of that fade towards that nothingness almost. And you can actually feel the nothingness. It's just so despairing and empty. Yeah, the screw tape has a line. It's, it's a quote from maybe Boethius or somebody like that. But God is the one without whom nothing is strong. And then he says, and nothing is very, very strong. That nothingness can pull you pull you in and and you can just sink into it. The other one is, um, the other image that comes to mind on the devil piece, what the devil looks like is in, in Paralandra. Lewis is again drawing from Milton, I think, on this, on this question. Um, and sort of the grandiose devil, you know, the, the great general, the great, who's very impressive and regal. And that's all masquerade. That's all a show. Um, and in, in Paralandra, the unman in, who's inhabited by the devil is a great rhetorician, great arguer. <laughs> um, but then Ransom notices that whenever he's not trying to tempt the green lady to, to sin, he becomes puerile, infantile, and is just satisfied with like the simplest of annoyances. So there's this like horrifying part where like Ransom is sitting next to the unman in Erlandra and it's dark. And then the, and then the unman says, Ransom. And Ransom says, what? And the unman goes, nothing. And then he says, Ransom, what? Nothing. And then he, and then Ransom, and then Ransom resolves, I'm not going to answer him. He's just being stupid. You know, it's like this childish, like picking at you. And then it's just ransom, 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 ransom. And finally, Andrew's like, what do you want? And he's like, nothing. That's incredible. And it's just this like satisfaction in the, in the simplest and most, you know, childish being a nuisance, just being a pest that that's enough. Hmm. Like that's what the devil, you know, and it's just like, and it's horrifying. You're like, that's, we could be that. <laughs> like we could yep. sink into that. If we choose, like if that, if we take that choice, that's where we go. Yeah. Turning to the more hopeful side, the heavenly side, right. it, the, the reality, ultimate truth, the thing that we're working on becoming further up more, further in with, what are some of the things that you, you discuss from that side? For Lewis, um, heaven is joy. Heaven is life. Heaven is full, rich, solid. Earth is actually shadow lands compared, comparatively speaking. Um, so it's more substantial. Yeah, you drink joy from the fountain of joy. And it's unending, and it's unending in its growth. It's getting bigger. So this is the Narnian places where Lewis really makes this, right? It's the further up and further in. It's like the farther in you go, it gets bigger. And so it's not like it's not like you exhaust it. You know, you never run out uh, because the glory of God is is inexhaustible. And so Lewis is always at pains to try to depict and to and to tease. I think that there's a way in which he's regularly trying to tease our imaginations. And hint at things suggestively, knowing that that God has built us with imaginations that will try to like grasp for that, and then realize we've only reached the fringes, we've only touched the edges, and that that's a beckon, that, that that's that's the joy that calls from beyond the world, and that and that beckons us. It comes through all of the earthly stuff, but it's not, it doesn't live there, it doesn't reside there, because you weren't made to be satisfied with the creaturely stuff. You were made for God, and therefore you've got to chase it all the way, all the way up. Mm. But in doing so, you become what you ought to be. You become what God made you to be. Um, you become truly human. And that's the whole, right? The, the subtitle of the book, Becoming Truly Human in the Presence of God. So coming into God's presence, coming into his personhood, united to him, participating in him, and then you become a real man for the first time. Mm. Well, final question, and I'd be remiss not to get your thoughts on this a little bit because you finished the very last section until we have faces. Yeah. And this is... Andrew's favorite work, uh, and obviously Lewis's favorite work as well. <laughs> I've read it a couple times now. The first time I really didn't like it. The second time I started to understand it a little bit more. But you wrote some really great stuff that was actually quite helpful. And so first, for listeners, if you haven't read it at all, maybe 
this could be a bit of a spoiler, spoiler alert if you want to hold off. That's right. <laughs> yes. If you want to hold off and like do the experience everyone has of the first time you read it versus the the subsequent times, which most people I hear you realize more and more in there. Um, but you did a really good job. You, you, if I recall, when I was going through this, you, you'd already gone through the sections on the loves mm-hmm. before this. Yep. And so in here, you're really bringing those loves into the story. So the first part of this chapter, talking about Orwall, the way that these loves are being corrupted after giving a, a summary, and then finish with what actually ends up happening, what she realizes, you know, to the second part of it. And so what's like that, that key, that thought, that, that key theme that's really helpful for understanding till we have faces uh, for someone who's read it once and was like, eh, this was okay. I like Lewis's other works. Yeah. So I think that there's a couple of things you could, you could go. So the, the choice is all in this. And the basic thing is if you read till we have faces in tandem with the four loves, it will help, help it make sense. Because effectively, and again, I was spoiler alert, turn it off if you want to go do this on your own. But if you've read the book, the idea is that um, Orwell has these three core relationships, right? She's got a romantic interest in Bardia. She's got a sister who she treats like a daughter, right? So even though they're techni- she, Psyche's technically her, her half-sister, the reality is, is that Orwell mothers her and, and regards her like a mother. So this is, this is family affection. And then the fox is a friend. So in terms of Lewis's, the four loves, the three natural loves, this is friendship, this is Eros, and this is Storgi, affection. And she has them. And the whole first half of the book is basically her self-justification for how the gods, it's pagans, but like this is God in disguise. This is the, the living God in disguise. The God, This is the God of love, Cupid, but it's the God of love, capital L, um, the living God in disguise. And um, she hates them. She, she thinks that they're out to get her, that they're just going to punish her, that they're capricious, um, that they're evil, which they just leave us alone. And so the whole first round is her sort of telling her story and sort of justifying herself. And the, the brilliance of it is when you read it, you have a lot of sympathy for her. You see the things that she's been through. You know, her mom died when she was young. Her dad was a tyrant and a bully and abusive. Yeah. I did have sympathy now that you say that. <laughs> right. Like like when you read it, you're like, yeah, this is hard, man. The gods do suck. This is terrible. Like why why would they do uh, this to her? Why would they take away Psyche? Why would they do this? Why why would all of these bad things happen to her? Why would she be the ugly one, right? Because she's the ugly one. And so she's never yeah. going to be loved. She has to wear a veil. Bardia, she loves him, but she doesn't. But he's, he's married, so she can't have him. And he wouldn't be interested anyway. Bardia sees her as like a man. And this is all like just the sadness of it all is really palpable. And the sympathy of like, she's like, I am accusing the gods. They are unfair. What, what can they say for themselves? And then there's like the last bit, the last four chapters or so is basically this reversal where basically all of the excuses, all of the um, explanations, all of the rationalizations are exposed as empty because the reality was she just hated God. Uh-huh. And because of that, she was seeking in the natural loves things they could never supply. So on the one hand, she's like, I love Psyche. She was actually really envious of Psyche. She wanted to own Psyche. She wanted to devour Psyche. Uh, she was envious of Bardia's wife and wanted to possess him. And she wanted to possess the fox. And so she manipulated him in various ways. And so all of a sudden, you see, you, you read it with sort of the self-justifications in there. But then you sort of get it sort of again. And you realize when it's stripped away of all of its disguise, this is really just self-love. And until it gets replaced with divine love, like that's the fourth love that that orders everything. This is the Augustinian point of rightly ordered loves. Um, unless divine love has its hand on the reins, all of the natural loves go wrong. They become, Lewis says, a very complicated form of hatred. <laughs> um, they're, they, they go by the name love, but it's a very complicated form of hatred. And, uh, and so she's got to actually come face to face with her creator, with the God who made her and who loves her. And so that's the, the the brilliance of the book is Lewis's psychological insight into human beings and the way that we work, the way we justify ourselves, and the self-deception that we we live in, and then the way that God sort of strips it away and leaves you bare and exposed. And now here's the choice. You can either bow up and get broken, mm-hmm. or you can surrender. You can lay down your arms. You can settle with your accuser. And that's the beauty. That's where the book, the book eventually goes to that moment where she kind of opens for the first time and realizes she was wrong. She was envious. She was selfish. She was a spider devouring all of her relationships. She was the problem. And she can then repent 
And then now because of that, it's, she becomes beautiful. She's like at the end, there's a second psyche, a second beautiful one as she sees her reflection for the first, you know, for the first time. And she realizes she's been beautified by surrendering to the God of love. Um, so there's the, I mean, it is a really beautiful story. I, I, I get why Lewis loves it, but I also get why a lot of people are like, I don't know what this is. This is a weird book. Yeah. You described that really well, by the way. <laughs> like, like, I actually genuinely want to go reread yeah, it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so what I would recommend is if, if I assume if you stayed through all of that, that you'd already read it, otherwise you just cheated. <laughs> what I, I would do is I would read, read the four loves, then, then read it. Um, if you want to read my, those chapters from Lewis on the Christian life, which sort of unpack the four loves and then, uh, and then walk through the book, hopefully that'll, that'll help give you a sense of like what Lewis is doing. And then you can find yourself in the story because all of us at some level are like Orwell where we may not be maternal vampires like she is trying to suck the life out of because men are different than women. Lewis's notion, you know, women become vampires, possessive in that kind of way. And men become brutes. Mm-hmm. They try to crush others. Um, women try to sort of possess others. And so he has this, you no know, men and women are different. And so their sins come out differently, but at root, it's the same impulse. It's the same mm. self-centered devouring impulse. It's the choosing of the self over God, which it brings us back to where we started, which is, this is the choice that faces us every day. And listeners, I can't stress enough. Joe just mentioned it. We covered maybe five of the 15 plus concepts in his book. Wanted to give you guys some teaser stuff. But like he has a whole part on the four loves and he dives into each of them, gives examples of corruptions. We didn't do any of that here. And so that's another way you can go into the book. You can obviously see a lot more. So Dr. Rigney, thank you for coming on the show. Before we sign off, where can listeners find more about you, central areas, different stuff to track you, follow you? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, the only social media I use is is Twitter and I use it sparingly. Uh, so at Joe underscore Rigney is where that is. I am a professor at New St. Andrews College and I teach theology and literature. So this is what I do for a living. Um, so if you if you have a uh, high school student who's considering college, maybe check out, check out New St. Andrews and consider uh, coming and sitting in on a class. I think I'll be doing a probably a Lewis elective here in the next year or so. A lot of the things that I write about just emerge out of my teaching. It's it's teaching through the mm. books again and again and again. And then at some point, it's like, I'll organize my thoughts and and commend it to, to everyone. Those would be the two big places. Uh, you can also find me somewhat, uh, I've got a lot of articles on Desiring God over the years. Uh, so desiringgod.org, you can find uh, articles from from me. And then on the Canon Plus app uh, would be a, a last place where I've got I've got more and more stuff showing up there. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Brigney, genuinely thank you for giving us uh, your time and more importantly, for taking the time to write the book. Um, Obviously, you're sharing that wisdom with us. And thank you to our sound engineers, Taylor and Sarah. And thanks to all our listeners and Patreon supporters, particularly our top tier ones. Alex, James, Matt1, Matt2, Erica, Joelle, Amanda, Thomas, Bud, Shane, Kay, Paul, Gary, Stephen, Kelly, Chris, John, James, Kate, Peter, David, Angela, and Rowdy. And we do genuinely pray for all of our listeners and the prayer requests that we have in our Slack channel uh, every single Tuesday. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. This is a wonderful one with just some great stuff. And so listeners, please join us next time. We'll continue going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers.